0: This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for for food, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What a great passage, huh? Have you
1: noticed how hard communication is in any relationship, but certainly in the marriage relationship in particular, it's hard. I want to, read some cartoons to you. Imagine a man, husband and his wife talking, and this is what he heard, okay? What he heard was, I'm going to make you wish you were dead for the rest of the week. What she actually said was, tell me the truth, honey. Do I look fat in this? (laughs) Communication's hard. What she heard was anything less than absolute perfection makes you an utter failure as a wife and mother. What he actually said was, Mom is coming over for dinner. <laughs> One more. <clears throat> what he heard was, Honey, why don't you put your head in a vise and I'll turn the handle until your skull explodes. <laughs> what she actually said was, Honey, why don't we turn off the TV and just talk? <laughs> <laughs> Communication's hard. <laughs> we misunderstand each other. That's true in marriage, but if you think about it, it's true in every relationship. It's certainly true in my marriage. Jeannie and I have a good marriage. We love each other, and I think we love each other pretty well, but too often, We misunderstand each other. We get our feelings hurt. We get upset. We don't understand. We feel slighted. It happens in the best marriage. It happens in every marriage. It happens to some degree in every relationship. Because no one loves anyone else perfectly. We're all selfish, selfishness invades every relationship. And even in my own life, apart from relationships with others, I struggle to do the right thing. I often know the right thing to do, and yet I struggle to do it and sometimes choose to do the wrong thing. So in ourselves that happens, in a communication with others, in relationships with others. And in general, the world as a whole is a mess. Sin and selfishness taints every relationship. On the personal level, on the international level, why, uh, why, do we, why are we in this economic mess, this financial mess in our country? Well, ultimately it all goes back to selfishness, right? Greed. People who wanted things they couldn't afford, so they took out loans that they couldn't afford and banks thought they could make the money, so they gave loans they couldn't afford and we ended up in the mess we're in because of greed. Why is the world such a mess? Why, as we've seen over the last few weeks, if God made the world good and he called it good, then why is there so much badness mixed in? As a young friend of mine put on her Facebook page recently, she was asking the question, very good question, if God is just... Why is the world so unjust? If God is just, how can the world be so unjust? That's a great question. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. We have random disasters that take thousands of lives. And if we're really honest and we really look closely, there is something wrong with everything. There's something wrong with everything. Even the best moment with another person or in a group of friends, ultimately there's a tint of sadness to it. Why is that? As uh, a recent columnist here in Boise wrote in a column, he said this, Nobody comes to be evil naturally. They are twisted into it by the environment they come from. So is that true? Is it all environmental? We'd all be good if we just weren't raised in a bad environment? Well, according to the scriptures, no, that's not true. In fact, the real problem, sure, environment influences how we end up and the choices we make, but ultimately there is something broken, wrong, about every one of us. And that's what this passage explains to us. Genesis 3 is critical to understand if we want to understand why the world is such a mess, why there's so much struggle and difficulty in relationships. So let's look and dig through this passage of Genesis chapter 3 so we can understand it more fully. As David just read, first couple of verses, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now in chapters 1 and 2, Of Genesis, we saw that God created the world good, untainted by sin. It's beautiful. And chapter 2 ends with this marvelous picture of God creating woman. She's
0: fabulous.
1: (laughs) Adam is so excited he can hardly stand it. And he bursts out with joy and poetry, the first recorded words of man anywhere, poetry, because he's delighted in this woman. And the chapter ends with, and they were both naked and were not ashamed. There's beauty and intimacy and no shame at all in their relationship. That's how chapter 2 ends. But chapter 3 ends with the world as we know it broken. How do we get there? Well, it begins right here with the serpent. The serpent had a scheme. The serpent, as we see in the New Testament, clearly embodies Satan. One reason the world is such a mess is that God has an enemy. And that enemy is Satan. We see him right here. And as he enters in, his ploy, his task is to deceive us and lead us to reject God. To lead us to go our own direction. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. He is a murderer. And he is out to destroy our lives. We have an enemy. And one reason the world is such a mess is because Satan's at work. Satan is there out to destroy our faith in God. And here, right from the beginning, he twists God's words. Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. Now, if you go back to chapter 2, you see clearly what God's words were to Adam. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. You see, God loves to open up the door and give us tremendous joy and opportunity. He goes on to say, just don't eat from one tree. But you can freely enjoy everything else. And so Satan comes in and says, huh, God's really put limits on you, hasn't he? He doesn't want you to be happy or fulfilled. He, he, want, he doesn't really want you to eat from any tree, does he? Well, the woman knows somewhat of the truth. She says, oh, well, we can eat from any tree in the garden except one, and, but we can't even touch it. Well, God didn't command that part of it. He's already got her confused. That's, Satan loves to do that, confuse us about what God really wants. To make us think that God is putting more limits on our lives than he really is. He wants us to enjoy fully the wonderful gifts he's given us in life. But Satan wants us to think God's a spoil sport. That God wants to make our lives miserable, miserable by rules and regulations. That's not from God. That's from Satan. And so he says, oh, God really doesn't want that. And then notice how he goes on, how he twists God's words first, and then he directly contradicts God's statement in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. In the Hebrew, it's emphasized, he's saying, you absolutely, no way, will die. So he directly contradicts what God said. If you eat from the tree of good and evil, you will die. He says, you absolutely will not die. God is lying to you, Eve. And again, that's part of Satan's ploy, to make us think that God is somehow holding out on us. Verse 5, for God knows, Satan says, that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and your eye, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's Satan trying to do here? Get Eve and to get us to question God's motives. <laughs> God is really holding out on you, Eve. He knows that you can become like him, and he doesn't want that. He's holding out on you. He's not really good. He's not really good and out for your best interests. And so he creates doubt in Eve's mind as to whether God really cares. He doesn't want you to be like him. The bottom line of what he's saying is you cannot trust God. You can't trust him. He's not really out for your best interests. Therefore, You had better take life into your own hands. This is the essence, folks, of sin. This is the essence. Sometimes we think of sin as crossing a boundary, you know, doing something bad, but it really all comes out of this inner attitude of, I can't trust God, so I better take life in my own hands. God is not really good. He's not really going to do what's best for me if I follow His way, so I better go. My own way. Oh, I may be religious. I may go to church. I may do all those things, but ultimately I can't trust God to take care of me. So I've got to take care of myself. That independence from God is the essence of sin. Satan gets us to doubt God's goodness. So we will go our own way. Like a friend who I've spent many conversations with whose marriage is struggling He knows what God says, but deep down he's saying, I don't know that I can go God's way. It just looks too painful. That road looks too rocky. I would rather try to find a way that's easier. And he's struggling with that temptation. That's the struggle for every one of us right there. Notice what happens in verse 6, the actual fall into sin. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So the woman, Eve here, buys what Satan's telling her. I really can't trust God. God said don't eat of this, but you know what? It sure looks good. And notice that there's three things that she depends on to make this decision. First of all, she says, huh, it's good for food. In other words, we tend to decide, make our decisions on what's practical. This looks good. It looks like practically it'll help me somehow. Secondly, she says, it's uh, a delight to the eyes. We just make decisions on appearance on what's practical and what looks good to us. And then thirdly, it's desirable to make one wise, what's going to benefit us. These become the standards for us. Rather than saying, what does God say? I will do what He says because I trust Him. He's proven His love for me. I will do what He says even when it doesn't seem that practical, even then when it doesn't look that good, even when... It may not appear to benefit me. I will do what God says. You see, that would be following him, but what we tend to do is decide on these other factors. That's our independence from God. It looks good to me, therefore, I think I will do that instead of trusting God. And ultimately, we're selfish, we're prideful, we're arrogant. We think we know better than God. Ultimately, we want to be, as Satan said, like God. But there's a problem when we become like God. We want to take his place. We are not God. And trying to be like God means we get into trouble. So this is the essence of sin. When we decide that we are going to determine what's right and wrong, what is good and evil. When we eat from the tree of good and evil, when Adam and Eve did, what that did is that caused us as humanity to, to become the arbiters, the one, the decision makers about what is good and evil instead of trusting God. And every human born since then has done that. And there's a major problem with that. It only leads to destruction because we're finite. We can't see the whole picture. It's kind of like having a flood under your house, and I've, that's happened a couple times to my house, where there's a leaky pipe underneath the house But all I can see is the faucet, so I'm working on the faucet all the time, hoping I can somehow fix it. And underneath there are pipes that are leaking. God sees the whole picture. He sees the leaky pipes. He sees everything. But we just look at what we can see and we try to make our decisions and it gets us into trouble because we don't have an infinite view. God sees everything from the beginning to the end. God sees into the heart of every human being. He knows what's best for us. And at times when he, we see what he says is best for us, we look at that and we say, that doesn't make sense to me, God. Well, of course it doesn't. He's infinite. We're not. He sees the whole picture. We don't. So there's many times that what God says is right will appear not to be right to us or best because we're looking at it as what's practical, what will benefit me, what looks good. Are you beginning to get a picture of what sin is? It's this independence that says, I will determine what's right and wrong for myself. I was talking this week to my brother-in-law, who's a teacher. He's been a teacher for 30 plus years, and he said, what's shocking to him just in the last few years is how his students, it used to be they would do wrong things, but they would feel bad about it. He said, not only do they not feel bad about it now, but they don't even understand that it's wrong. Kids steal things and and they'll say, put that back, you stole that. And, And they'll say, why, what's wrong? It was there, why can't I take it? They have no sense of right and wrong in an increasing aura of sin and a breakdown of morality and ethics in this country because kids aren't understanding right and wrong, because they become the arbiters of what's right and wrong. At least society socializes most people, but it's becoming less and less true that that's happening. And so there's more brokenness, more misunderstanding, because we are trying to determine ourselves what's right and wrong. I want you to notice something that really affects marriage here. (laughs) It says, she took from the fruit and ate at the end of verse 6, and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. He was with her. He was standing there the whole time. Satan's talking to her, deceiving her. He got the direct command from God, and what does the man do? He says nothing. And then when she gives him the fruit, he goes ahead and eats it. In chapter 2, where a man was created, it says God put him in the garden to work it and to guard it. That's the word. Keep it or guard it. He was meant to be a guardian of what God had said and what God had created. But what the man does here instead, he lets Satan, he should have taken Satan and wrung his neck or kicked him out of the garden and said, you get out of here. That's a lie. You leave my beloved alone. But he didn't. And that's been the struggle, I think, for us men ever since. We we struggle to be the guardians of what God has created to step out and lead and love and care for creation, our wives, our families. And yet there's something very interesting over in Romans chapter 5. It says this in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. Stop there for a minute with me. Who ate of the fruit first? Eve did, right? And yet, in Romans, Paul, in his commentary on Genesis, says, through one man, sin entered the world. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the fall, which spread to every one of us, this independence from God. But notice who's held responsible. Eve ate first, but who's held responsible? Adam. Adam is. Men, I don't know about you, but I take this as a real challenge, personally, in my life and in my marriage. It's easy for us to kind of back down like Adam and say, well, pff, you know, she's going to make her own decisions and my kids are going to do their thing and I've just got to focus on work. I'm a provider. That's what I'm going to do. And, and we back off from guarding and protecting and kicking Satan out of our, out of our families and our homes and we don't take responsibility, but ultimately, I think as men, as I read this text, when we stand before God someday, and we say, yeah, but she, but they, but God will say, no, I held you responsible for your family. Now, again, our kids, our wives make their choices, but, but I think what he's saying is, did you seek me, Did you seek to guard your family? Did you seek to take responsibility to love your family well? Because ultimately, like Adam, I think we men will be held responsible. So I take that as a charge from God, and let me challenge you men to take that as a charge. So that is the fall of mankind. Listening to Satan, choosing to say, no, nah, I don't know if I can trust God. I... I don't know if he's really good, so I'm going to to make decisions about what's good for me myself. And every one of us born since then have struggled with that because it was passed on to every one of us. And there were consequences to that. And that's what we want to look at next. Verses 7 through 13. What are the consequences of that fall to all of us? Verse 7. I want to list several of them here. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. First thing that happened was shame and guilt. Remember the end of chapter 2? They were naked and not ashamed. All of a sudden now they know they're naked and they're ashamed. There's guilt, There's, which is something that every, again, every human struggles with. This shame, this guilt, this sense that if I'm exposed, people are going to reject me. Secondly, there's a broken relationship with God. Verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid. Now this is God. How foolish to try to hide from God, but they're hiding behind trees, trying to hide from the creator of the universe who made them and made everything else. There's a broken relationship with God, a a fear before God, a fear that God rejects you and that guilt before Him. There's a lost trust and a lost sense of acceptance before him. Third, there's fear. Verse 9 and 10, The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. So I hid. Fear has entered the world. Fear, shame, guilt. None of these things were in the world before Adam sinned, but sin enters in, and we all experience shame, guilt, and fear fear of rejection, fear of the future, fear of a stock market crash, fear of what might happen, fear of failure. Fear entered the world when sin entered the world. Fourth, there's a broken relationship with others. Verse 11 through 13, And God said, Who told you you were naked? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said, what have you done? The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, Adam and Eve, who were in perfect harmony, and he's telling her poetry because he's so excited about seeing her. And now he's blaming her. It's her fault. So there's this sense of blame and pointing fingers and... Broken relationship, misunderstanding, hurt, so that every relationship has this tainting of brokenness and pain, hiding, blaming God, blaming others, blaming. You see, through the fall, man fell, we fell. And the word that God uses for it is death. Now, we'll see physical death comes a little later, but it does come because of sin. But ultimately, when God said, you eat from this tree and you will die, he was talking about spiritual death, this separation from God, separation from one another, even a brokenness within ourselves where we're broken, every one of us. We're a fallen, broken people, every person. We're broken in our relationship with ourselves and with others and ultimately... With God. And what this means is every human being is capable of great good because we're all made in the image of God. And every human being is capable of great evil because when we choose to act independently of God, we become the deciders of right and wrong. We end up hurting ourselves and others and ultimately God Himself. That's the fall. That's how it affected every one of us. We're capable of crime and murder, etc. Because when you separate yourself from God, you make your own decisions and you become subject to the ploys of Satan himself. He's the God of this world. And you're either serving one or the other. So man fell. But, as we'll go on to see, creation fell as well. When the fall happened, when the fall from grace, when we turned our backs on God and decided to act independently of Him, creation fell as well. It's twisted and it's broken. As Romans 8 says, all of creation, Romans eight twenty through 22, all of creation was subjected to futility, to corruption. And that's why there's earthquakes and tsunamis. That's why... There are tragedies and random accidents. That's why everything you have in your house eventually breaks down. (laughs) Because we live in a fallen world. Because sin tainted everything. Creation itself is tainted. And waiting for the day when Jesus will return and create a new heavens and the new earth that won't have any of that corruption to it. Scientists call this the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy. That everything is breaking down in creation. Everything is running down. All, the whole universe is running down. Why? Because sin affected everything. And it will only be set right when Jesus returns. So my friend who asked, How can God be just? If God is just, why is the world unjust? Well, it's because God gave us a choice. In his desire to have us love him freely, he gave us a choice to turn our backs on him. And when we did that, all the world became unjust. There's injustice in relationships. The world's not fair. There's injustice between nations. We live in a broken, hurting world. So those are the consequences of sin that we all experience. Death, it's called. The wages of sin is death. It's not a very pretty picture. So how does God respond? And that's what we want to look at in the rest of the chapter because God's response is one of love. It's tough love, but it's one of love. And I think this passage is often misunderstood because we think God's just being judgmental or or whatever. No, it's a tough love where God begins to act immediately to woo us back to Himself. And I want to point out six actions I see in the rest of this chapter that we see how God has responded in love to reach out to us and to woo us back in our rejection of Him. First, He questions us. Notice the questions He asks. Verse 9, where are you? Did God know where he was? Sure he did. (laughs) Verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Did God know the answer to that? Sure he did. But God questions us. He reaches out to us to give us the opportunity to say, God, I did it. I was wrong. You see, he's constantly trying to help us see that he is reaching out and gives us the opportunity to repent, to admit we're wrong, to admit we've run life our lives our own way, and to come back to him and repent. And he questions us. He reaches out to us through those questions. Secondly, he promises the defeat of our enemy, Satan. And as he judges the serpent, verse 14 and 15, Cursed are you. He curses the serpent and makes this snake something that we'll always be uncomfortable with. And I will put enmity, hatred between you and the woman, verse 15, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is a promise, a prophecy that Satan will be crushed. His head will be crushed one day. Yeah, he'll, cruise, he'll, he'll bruise the, the heel of her seed. Who is this? Jesus. It's a prophecy, the first prophecy of Jesus. That yes, he was taken to the cross, he died for our sins, but in that act he destroyed the power of Satan forever. So we don't longer have to be subject to him if we turn to Jesus, if we follow him. So he promises defeat of our enemy, Satan. Third, he promises pain in women's relationships. Whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) This is love? To the woman, he said, verse 16, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Listen very carefully to what God is doing here. Never curses the woman. He only curses the serpent and later the ground. But what he says is, I'm going to bring you pain. In the most important relationships in your life, your children and your husband, there will be difficulty. Why would God do that? Think for a moment about the heart of God. God created us to know him and to love him. But he knows that as we turned our backs on him, his heart was broken, and he wanted to woo us back. But he knows how hard-hearted we are and that if life goes well for us, we don't need God. We will never turn back to him. Woman was created, we saw in chapter 2, as a companion, a partner for the man. Women are more relational than men. That's a fact of creation. They focus, in general, more on relationships. So God says, I'm going to take your most important relationships and make them frustrating. You're going to have pain as you raise children. You're going to have pain in your relationship with your husband. You, will, you and your husband will be in conflict. You'll want to control the relationship, and he won't let you, and you're going to be in conflict. That's what that passage is talking about. And God says, I will frustrate what's most important to you as a woman, So that life will not go well, and you will see that you need me, and you will turn back to me. That is tough love. The kind of love that we have to use on our kids sometimes. It's not easy, it's not comfortable, but it's tough love because He knows our hearts better than we do. And He knows that's the only way we will turn back to Him when we see our need as we struggle in relationships. Well, He did the same for men. He promises toil in men's work. Notice he curses the ground. Verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, literally it's obey, because you've obeyed your wife instead of what I told you to do, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is it the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man was created, put in the garden, and said, work the garden, guard it. Have, Have you noticed that men tend to focus on their work? We tend to get our significance from our work. And God says, you know what? Whatever work you do, here he's talking about working the ground, but it's true for all of us. Whatever kind of work you do, pastoral ministry, real estate, construction, whatever, I will build toil into it, struggle into it. Again, God's tough love. Why would God do that? So that life will not go well and we'll realize we need God. So that we will turn back to him because we can't ultimately get our fulfillment ultimately from our work. That's God's tough love. And then fifth, God provides covering for our nakedness. Verse 20 and 21. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God, in his great love and care for us, saw us in our brokenness and our sin and made the first sacrifice, killed animals, took their skins because he knew we couldn't adequately deal with our guilt. We use fig leaves. That doesn't help. And he made coverings for us, for Adam and Eve, by taking the life of animals so that they could be clothed. God is giving us a picture of what was to come years later when Jesus gave his life for us and his blood covers us. As God said, I know you can't cover your guilt yourself. You can't deal with your own sin. I will make a way that you can experience forgiveness, covering. Life as a gift. And then finally at the end, he shuts Adam and Eve out of the garden. He says, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever, I will shut them out of the garden. Why did he do that? Because if they'd eaten of the tree of life and lived forever, they would be trapped in their sinfulness forever. Do you realize physical death is actually the way God has redeemed it is actually a gift to us. Because if we didn't deteriorate and die, we would be trapped to live a life trapped in these sinful fleshly bodies forever. But death now, when you've trusted Jesus, becomes the doorway into life with Him where you're actually free from sin forever in His presence. Hallelujah! Again, God's tough love. Why is the world such a mess? Because Adam and Eve chose to disobey God to say, I will make my own decisions about what's right and wrong, about what's good. And every one of us have followed in their footsteps since. But God in his love has made a way by frustrating life so that we will be driven back to him and experience the free covering he offers us in Jesus Christ. You see, God loves us enough that he doesn't let us continue to live in our brokenness, but he gives us a way to experience life. So how should we respond? By rejoicing in what he's done for us, by seeking him, by learning to not live life on my terms, but learning to submit my life to him and worship him and do what he says, even when it doesn't seem practical when it doesn't seem to make sense, when it doesn't necessarily look like the best way to me, but trusting that he's good because he proved he was good forever when he sent his son Jesus to die for you on the cross. You know God loves you, that he is good because he sent his son to die for you. Let's pray. Lord, as we've looked at this passage, it's such a clear picture of our own brokenness and our own independence of you and we confess that to you now and we thank you that you've made a way that we can begin to live a life of dependence and joy in you lord show us ways in which we've acted independently and help us submit to you and rejoice in you and help us be lights in this dark world because this world so desperately needs to see that there is another way a way of life